going to be in Luke chapter 8 today, so please join me in the gospel according for, to Luke chapter 8. We've been working through this book of the Bible all year long on Sunday mornings. I've already told you it's going to take two years, maybe a little more on Sunday mornings to get through Luke because we're going through it expositionally, verse by verse, we're everything as we come to it and here we are this morning in the middle of Luke chapter number 8 if you remember this past Sunday we saw in Luke 8 22 through 25 Jesus and his disciples journeying from the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee crossing the lake to the eastern shore. And what did they encounter as they made that voyage? A storm. And we saw that he cared, that Jesus cared for the disciples as they encountered a storm, and it provides help and hope for us when we encounter storms. Not every storm is wind and rain and thunder and lightning and waves, right? There are storms that you and I face in life. The difficult circumstances, experiences that we encounter. And it is a blessing to know that we have help and hope in Jesus when we encounter storms. And they can be difficult, can't they? But as difficult and painful as storms can be, storms are not the greatest danger to our lives. There's a greater danger still. It's a danger that Jesus and his disciples encounter as soon as they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Follow along as we read in the 8th chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, Neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep, And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. 
Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. The whole multitude of the country of the gatherings round about besought him to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear, and he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. What a story, an account in the word of God. Jesus and his disciples had just encountered a storm. And then when they made landfall, immediately they are met by a man possessed of demons. As you read Luke 8, 26 to 40, and the sister passages in Matthew 8 and Mark 5, you find the most descriptive account of demon possession found in the Bible. And it begs the question, what are demons? Demons are angels created by God who rebelled against God with Lucifer. An angel who contended with God in a failed coup attempt in heaven. We believe the scriptures teach that Lucifer became the Satan or Satan the devil. And the fallen angels became his demons. The Bible speaks to us in Isaiah and Ezekiel, as well as Revelation about these events. And we believe that Lucifer, an angel created by God, who was close to the throne of God, worshiping God, became lifted up with pride and desired to usurp God's throne and authority. The Bible leads us to understand that the angels at that time had a one-time to rebel with Lucifer against God or to remain faithful to God. Those who rebelled with Lucifer against God fell from heaven with him and became these demons. We believe that God's creative work is done and so there are no more or no less angels than there were from the beginning. We believe Lucifer's rebellion marked that one-time opportunity, as I mentioned, for them to remain faithful or to rebel and remain fallen. In other words, angels don't have the opportunity to repent. Those angels who rebelled with Lucifer against God cannot now at some point repent and become angels again in the sense that we think of them. After his fall, 
Lucifer entered a serpent in Eden shortly after the creation. And through the serpent, Satan deceived and tempted Eve. Humanity fell, and Satan plunged God's good world into darkness and brokenness. And that event shows Satan's plot from then until now. Friends, understand, Satan's plot has not changed. He still, with his demons, wars against God, wars against God's creation, and wars against God's purposes constantly. Pastor David Guzik, who is also an author, said it this way. We can say that the demons want to inhabit bodies for the same reason why a vandal wants a spray can or a violent man wants a gun. A body is a weapon that they can use in their attack against God. Demons also attack men because they hate the image of God in man. So they try to mar that image by debasing man and making him grotesque. Friends, if his plot has not changed, then that means that Satan constantly wars against you. I'm concerned that this reality is something that we neglect all too often. Paul Hybert, an anthropologist and missiologist, is a man who grew up in India. He, he grew up where spirituality, not in the sense of Christian maturity, but just in the sense of a focus on the spirit realm, is vast. It's, it's widely thought of. But he received his Christian training here in the Western world. And as he compared his growing up to his Western training, he writes about our neglect of the spirit world, both good and evil. While other places in the world maintain a strong focus on the spirit world, though not necessarily from a biblical perspective, those of us in the West tend to minimize it. Or we think about it in terms of God and us as spiritual beings, but we do not theologically or practically think about or live within the scope of evil spiritual beings. And this writer calls it a blind spot in Western or American Christianity. Today we want to open our eyes to the truth. But as we do, Let's not be fearful. Jesus, who was the help and the hope of the disciples when they faced the storm, is also the help and hope that we can depend upon when we encounter satanic attack. And so just as we should, instead of fearing, have faith in him when we encounter storms, we should, instead of fearing, have faith in him when we encounter satanic Attack, And so let's look at these truths today. Number one, I want you to understand this. 
Satan and his demons are persuasive. Would you write that down if you're taking notes? Satan and his demons are persuasive. Notice the behavior of this man in the text. According to Luke's account, he was obsessed with nakedness and death. When he came to meet Jesus, the Bible says he wear no clothes. He, he was what we would just simply refer to today as a crazy man. He was obsessed with death, living among the tombs, among the graveyard. Mark's gospel adds that he was constantly crying and cutting himself with stones. I do not think it's a coincidence that we see these behaviors today. What the world will always label as psychotic or psychiatric illness is at times the persuasion of Satan and his evil spirits on a dark, broken world and the people who live in it. Seven months ago, I was having a conversation with one of my pastor friends who is on the other side of Raleigh. And he was sharing with me a recent experience of his with a, a, a couple in his church who were attending his church. The, the man in the situation had expressed his concern to the pastor about a, a symbol of the cross being on their stage and the reason was, he said he could not have his body facing the symbol of the cross because it created physical pain. It wasn't long after that that the pastor got a call because that man was seen running around the city naked with no clothes on. And his response in telling me this was, why do I get all the weird ones? The reality is there's something more than just weird going on there. And so often when we see or hear of behaviors that seem just what we might say are out there, unnatural, strange, understand, friends, that, that we have this blind spot. Yes, there are times where there's something organic, there's something physical that can explain what is going on. But the reality is there are times when what is going on is the persuasion of Satan and his demons on a fallen, broken world and a fallen, broken humanity. Just as we see going on here in this text. Satan and his demons persuade. I think we find three specific ideas given to us in the scriptures. Number one is exactly what we see here in Luke chapter 8, and that is possession. This man, and actually if you read Matthew's gospel, the Bible tells us there that there were two demonic men who met Jesus and his disciples, the one Mark and Luke describes was the dominant of the two. These men had demons literally living inside of them. Biblical evidence leads us to believe 
that only those who do not believe in Jesus can experience demonic possession. So, truly, literally, anyone out there who is lost, anyone in here who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, could have the potential of experiencing demonic possession. I read an account just this week. It was a beautiful story from a young lady who shared her testimony before coming to Jesus Christ. And her testimony was that she practiced witchcraft. Literally doing spells being a part of the occult, loving, being obsessed with darkness and death. And she expressed that that during that time of her life, any time what she called the big C word was mentioned, or the big G word, God, Christ, Christianity, literally it would cause her to boil over until she expressed the grace of God became real to her and she trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. But but why was that her experience? The persuasion of Satan on her life. Demon possession is most often discussed in the Bible as occurring during the time of Christ, but it has happened at all times and will continue to happen until God defeats his enemies. Not only possession, but Satan practices persuasion through oppression. You'll not find this word in the Bible used in this sense, but it's the word that we use to describe demonic activity where Satan and his demons attack God's people. We believe the Bible teaches that God's people, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior cannot be possessed by demons because, friends, you're already possessed by one, the Holy Spirit of God. And where the Holy Spirit of God lives, demons are not welcome. So you do not need to fear demonic possession, but you can experience demonic oppression, satanic or demon attack against you. The Bible declares this, about Satan's attack against God's people. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We're exhorted, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This word wiles describes Satan's scheme and strategy. Satan schemes against. He strategizes against the people of God. He works to disarm, to discourage, and to defeat God's people. First Peter says it this way, a familiar passage, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He tirelessly schemes against, strategizes against God's people. And I've shared with you before this idea that he seeks whom he may devour, the idea there literally means he looks for an open door. He, He looks for the best opportunity. Satan is not stupid, friends. He's going to look for your weak spots. 
He's going to attack you in places of weakness. He's going to attack you at specific times, perhaps when you're down, when you've, as, as Jesus and the disciples had, when you've just encountered a storm, when your faith is being tested. He's going to attack. And the Bible declares to us there that we need to resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Satan constantly hunts for believers to take down. He wants to disarm you. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? You're a soldier. You may not realize it, but you're a part of God's military. When you came to faith in Christ, you joined his army. We sing the kids' song, don't we? Maybe you don't anymore, but the kids do. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he wrote about that truth. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us to put on our what? Our armor. What Paul tells us is we need to go to God's armory. And get our armor and our weapons so we're ready for battle. You're in a war. And Satan is constantly looking to disarm you. To take away what God has provided to you to use in warfare. The Bible tells us that one of the purposes of the church, one of the descriptions given in the word of God of the pastor... Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, God gave some, some apostles and some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfection of the saints, for the work in the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. The idea there is literally the equipping. Part of the job of the church and of the pastor is to give tools that you can put in your toolbox to use to do a work for God, to serve God, to stand against the wiles of the devil. But Satan wants to disarm you. He wants to take your weapon. He wants to take your armor. He wants to take your tools. He wants to discourage you. Why? Friends, a discouraged Christian is a Christian who cannot be very effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to defeat you. He wants to take you down. Not only does he use possession and oppression, he uses deception. Jesus spoke about Satan in John 8, 44, when he was looking at, hey, don't miss this, he was looking at religious people. He was looking at Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he said this, ye are of your father, the devil. That'll wake you up. You're of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And friends, should you not understand this morning, Satan doesn't lie the way that, that my kids sometimes lie to me. You know, where your kid tells you a lie, and it is so plainly obvious it's a lie, 
that you're like, I'm doing a really poor job teaching this kid to be smart because that's a dumb lie. That's not Satan. He's a master deceiver. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he appears as an angel of light. Friends, you don't think that Satan can take the right amount of truth, mix it just right to make it look right? Isn't that what he did with Eve in the garden? Yeah, he can do that. He can do it to you, he can do it to me. And I want you to think about this. Satan is so persuasive that something yet future, Jesus is going to return to the earth. I'm talking after the rapture, after the tribulation. Jesus is going to return to the earth. Satan the dragon is going to be bound and thrown in a pit for a thousand years. And Jesus is going to rule. Do you know what the Bible tells us about his rule? It's going to be perfect. It's going to be righteous. We're going to go back to Garden of Eden-like perfection. The lion will lay down with with the lamb. Children will be able to walk on on the holes of the vipers and asps, venomous snakes, and not be hurt. We believe that that age will be like it was early in human history, that people will live well beyond the lifespan we see today. For a thousand years, the world will be that way. And yet, think about this. At the end of a thousand years, the dragon's going to be let out of his pit. He'll have served his sentence for that time. And he will be able to go throughout the world and amass a massive army to battle against Jesus. You say, how stupid can people be? Do you ever give in to satanic attack? I know I do. You ever give in to the oppression, the attack? You ever give in to the deception? That's how persuasive he is. Can you, can you identify Satan and his demons' persuasion in your life? They'll work to persuade you, your thinking, your practice, in order to disarm, discourage, and defeat you. And then I want you to see, secondly, not only Satan and his demons are persuasive, think about this this morning— Satan and his demons are powerful. Look, if you would, back at verse number 29. I mean, this is tremendous. Uh, The Bible tells us that this man was, was taken by his society. And understand where Jesus and his disciples are, this is not Jewish territory. When they go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to this place known as the country of the Gadarenes, in what is called the Decapolis. It's a group of 10 major cities on that side of the Sea of Galilee that are Roman Gentile cities. This isn't Jewish territory. This man possessed was likely not a Jew. The the people of the society around him weren't Jews. These were were Romans. These were Gentiles. These were people who 
who believed uh, polytheistically. They believed in many gods. They worshipped the emperor's god. Likely a lot of Greek philosophy and, and mythical thinking and superstition among these people. So when they take this man and they bind him with chains and his, his feet, his hands, his head in the, in the fetters, the stock... This was actually not a form of imprisonment. It was a form of treatment. There's clearly something not right with this guy, and this is their way of treating him to try to deal with it. And what does he do? The Bible says he rips the chains asunder. He breaks the fetters in pieces. I, I mean, this is, this is not normal human strength. This is something supernatural. And of course here it's talking about physical strength, but, but it's not just about physical strength. This is a picture, it's an illustration of the power, physical or otherwise, at Satan's disposal. Think about just some examples of his strength that appear from throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapters 7 and 8, Moses came with God's power to demand that Pharaoh release the children of Israel from bondage. He throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. Well, guess what? Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. He, he touches his staff to the Nile River and it becomes blood. Guess what? Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. He causes frogs to come up over the whole land. And guess what? Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure why they would want to. Seems kind of silly to me. You're overrun with frogs and we're going to bring some more. The point is that these heathen people are able to imitate and even replicate the demonstrations of God's power. How? Was there trickery involved? Perhaps. Yes. Satan's a trickster. But there was power there. Think about Daniel chapter 10. The Bible tells us that Daniel was reading the word of God and he was overwhelmed with, with trying to understand Jeremiah's prophecy. And he's fasting, he's praying, he's asking for direction for three weeks. He's fasting, and I'm sure to Daniel, it seemed like a dry season in his spiritual walk. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had seasons in life where you're, you're reading the word of God, you're praying, you're seeking God's face, and it seems like you're getting nowhere? Daniel experienced that, and finally, after three weeks... An angelic messenger shows up and says this, The moment your voice was heard, I came. But then he says this, The prince of Persia hindered me. Who's this prince of Persia? We believe it's a, a personification of Satan or, or one of his demonic beings. So get this. An angelic messenger is sent by God to answer Daniel. And that angelic messenger sent by God is hindered 
by Satan or one of his demons. That's power. The Bible tells us that angelic messenger told Daniel that God had to send Michael, my namesake, the archangel, to come with an angelic army to help defeat the prince of Persia so the angelic messenger could get through to Daniel. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul is giving a testimony about his work to share the gospel, and this is what he says. He says the Gentiles are under Satan's power. They're blind, they're in darkness, and they're under Satan's power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a very familiar passage, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, right? And he asked God three times, remove this thorn from me. Now, don't miss this. The thorn was there was placed there by God. The thorn was of God. But what did Satan do with something that was of God in Paul's life? In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, Satan's messenger came to buffet me. God was doing a work in Paul's life, and God makes clear why. This is going to keep you from sin. It's going to keep you being lifted up with pride. It will magnify my strength in your weakness because my grace is sufficient for you. But in the middle of God's work being done in Paul's life, Satan sent one of his messengers to beat Paul up with it. Do you think he would do the same in your life? There are things that God will allow in your life. Sometimes they're storms. And they're to grow you. They're to mature you. They can be to keep you from sin. To keep you from being lifted up with pride. Like Paul said was true of him. They're so that God's strength can be magnified in your weakness. But guess what? Satan in the middle of God's work will send one of his messengers to beat you up with it. He'll do it. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 18... Paul says this very clearly to the Thessalonians. He said, I wanted to come see you face to face. But whereas in other places, he said, God didn't allow me. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18, Paul said, Satan hindered me. Satan kept me from coming to you and seeing you face to face. So over and over again, we see in the word of God examples of the truth that Satan has power. And just like he will use persuasion to disarm, discourage, and defeat you, Satan will use the power at his disposal to disarm, discourage, and defeat you. He'll still replicate or imitate God's work to keep your eyes off God. He'll still hinder God's work to you or God's work through you. He'll still use the difficulties you face in your life to discourage you are you ready are you prepared to face that kind of power he's powerful he's persuasive but i told you that that shouldn't cause us to fear just like we have help and hope in Jesus when we encounter storms, we have help and hope in Jesus when we encounter satanic attack. Because while Satan may be persuasive, while Satan may be powerful, I want you to see number three, Satan and his demons are defeated. 
Hey, yes, he's persuasive. Yes, he's powerful. But friends, don't miss the truth that he is defeated. Did you see what happened in our text? I mean, here comes this mad man of Gadara. He's naked. He's crying. He's cutting himself. He's living among death. And he comes to Jesus. He's animated by the demons who are living in him and through him. But what happens when they come face to face with Jesus? What does the Bible say the man does? He falls down before Jesus. And don't don't miss it, friends. The man is not in control. Who's in control? The demons are. Jesus says, what is your name? And who answers? The man doesn't answer. The demons answer. The demons are in control. The man is not. And yet, when they come face to face with Jesus, what happens? They bow to Jesus. They're at war with him. But they know who their master is. Their master ain't Satan. Jesus is their master. And Jesus has already commanded, get out him how did the demons respond we're not doing what you say is that what they said not jesus we like it just fine right here is that what they said nope they said suffer us what does that mean permit us to to leave this man and, and go into the swine don't 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 send us to the deep the, the word there is the abyss it it, it can just have the idea of a deep, dark pit. I believe it, it means to them that place of eternal torment where they know they're headed for eternity. Don't send us to the deep. Just We know that day's coming. We don't want to go yet. So put us in the swine. And Jesus suffered them. He permitted them. So all through the account, Satan and his demons who are persuasive, who are powerful show time and time again they're defeated they have no power before jesus christ they have no authority in the presence of the savior jesus christ he already has the victory there may be warfare ongoing but the victory is already certain because the essential battle was already won Okay, so when did that occur? What was the essential victory? What event secured God's victory over Satan and his forces? I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I think that sometimes we have a little bit of a wrong approach Uh, toward this sometimes even some christian songs can give us the idea that at this event satan and his forces were triumphant what event are we talking about the 
cross. It was at the cross that Jesus won the essential victory. Look at how Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He writes, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to, to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Jesus, through his crucifixion, forgave us all the wrongs we'd ever done. He took the handwriting of ordinances, the law that condemns us, that shows us that we're sinners, and he nailed it to the cross. And then in verse number 15, Paul writes this, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What does Paul say? At the cross, where Jesus gave his life, he laid bare the weakness of Satan and his forces. He won the victory over them. It was at the cross that Jesus went up against the greatest powers of earth and hell and won the victory. And that is why at the cross, these words, it is finished. To die. it is finished. The victory is won. One said it this way, the death of Christ was not only a pardon, it also manifested might. It not only canceled the debt, it was a glorious triumph. When the Bible says he triumphed over them in it, this is the, the idea at that time of the Roman traditional victory parade where a conquering general led the defeated general and captives through the city in triumph. The Romans would gather on the, on the street sides and corners and they would be cheering as the tri triumphant general rode in his chariot and behind him was the line of captive prisoners. And that's the idea here. Jesus in dying and accomplishing that work actually won the victory over Satan and the forces of evil. And as a, a triumphant general, he showed the world that Satan and his demons are defeated. Jesus won the victory at the cross. But I also want you to remember this, friend. It's not only about the cross. That's where the essential victory was secured, but we can see the victory elsewhere. Secondly, in the church. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Jesus at the cross and he gave that victory to his church Matthew 16 18 and I say unto thee thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it Paul wrote this now thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the Savor of his knowledge by us in every place, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. He's given us the victory. So why? Why would we as individual Christians, why would we as a church 
go through our lives day by day living like we don't have the victory? Why would we go through our lives day by day as, as believers? Why would we go through our ministry work as a church acting like we can't do this? We're not going to be successful. We're not going to be victorious. The victory is already ours because Jesus won it and gave it to us. He's the one that we follow. He's the one that we exalt. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we serve. And no matter the satanic attack we face, no matter how much he may try to disarm, discourage, and defeat us, he can only do that as we allow him to. But we don't have to. You don't need to live disarmed, discouraged, and defeated. The church doesn't need to live disarmed, discouraged, and defeated. We already have the victory in his cross, and we can continue to live in victory as we take up our cross and follow him. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And friends, we, we, we think of that verse in this sense of, you know, we have to lay something down. We have to sacrifice. We have to surrender to him. But I want you to see, yes, there is truth in that, but there's also truth in this. The cross is our victory. The cross is an instrument of death. But the cross is also the, the symbol of victory. That's where Jesus gave Satan his final defeat. And it is as we take up our cross and follow him that we can truly live in victory over the one who seeks to disarm, to discourage, and defeat us. How will you respond to his truth? It's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 8 that the people of the Decapolis, uh, of that region, they feared and they said, leave. And Jesus did. And then he went back to the other side and he found people waiting who the Bible says received him gladly. Do you know that that's picturesque of the way we respond to God and his truth? Go away. I don't want it. Receive gladly. And then what about the man-man who was healed? How did he respond? Let me come with you. And Jesus said, no, I, I don't need you physically with me. I've got a work for you to do right here right where you are. Go back and tell those of your own household how great things the Lord hath done for you. And you know what's amazing? Jesus would visit that region again at a later time in his ministry. And you know what happened then? The Bible tells us there that when Jesus visits that same region, these people who said leave, go, later on, received him 
greatly. And he did amazing work among them. And I have to wonder if that was all because one man started telling everybody around him about what Jesus had done for him. How will you respond? Friends, when you face satanic attack, if you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, you don't need to be afraid. You can depend on him. He is your help. He's your hope. If you don't know Christ, the gospel's for you. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died the death you deserve, and he rose again to offer you salvation. Will you receive it?